We turn in God's Word this morning to Mark's Gospel once again, chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. We'll begin reading at verse 12 and read through verse 25, 26. Mark 11, starting at verse 12. Let us hear God's breathed out word to us as his people. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not let anyone, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be, a, shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it, were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. But all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. They passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And then, uh, as is added in some of the manuscripts, but if you do not forgive, Neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Our Father, Lord in heaven, we thank you for this portion of your word. We ask that you will be with Pastor Bob as he speaks on this word, that it may be close to our hearts. This we ask in your name alone. Amen. And amen. So we have, once again, the story or the event of the cursing of the fig tree, bracketing the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. It's as if the cursing of the tree and then Jesus teaching about the tree sort of put parentheses around this temple cleansing, as if it were this cursing of the fig tree and the lesson of the fig tree is what I'm doing as I come and cleanse the temple. So we're paying attention now particularly to, to that part within the parentheses. 
of Jesus' emphasis on what is taking place here in the temple. But before we do that, just to clear up a couple of things. One, you might ask, why does Jesus curse a fig tree if it is not the season for figs? Why would Jesus expect there to be figs if it's not the season for figs? It's sort of like asking the question, why would you go out in March and expect to find apples on an apple tree? Because, what did I explain last Lord's Day? It has leaves. If a fig tree has leaves, the leaves come after the fruit. So even though it is not the season for figs, the tree is saying it is. The tree is proclaiming to all who pass by, the season for figs is here. The season for figs is here. Why? Because it has leaves, yet it has no figs. So as Israel's responsibility in the world was to call out to the world that Christ is coming, there were no figs, there were no fruit of that proclamation. Therefore, Jesus rightly curses the tree. Secondly, turn back with me to Matthew chapter 21. Go with me to verse 18. Matthew's account. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it, found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them. And we have basically the same quote. Now, the question is, why then, when we come to Mark chapter 11, verse 20, it says, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away from its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. The question arises, why does Peter say the next day it's withered when the text tells us that it withered as soon as Jesus cursed it? Answer, the disciples didn't see it then. It's a simple answer. Jesus cursed it, the tree withers, but the disciples are not observing it. The disciples do not see it then. Matthew draws a distinction. It withered, then the disciples take note of it. There is a time lapse in between there. The time lapse is the next morning. They go into the temple area. They go into Jerusalem. By the time they leave, it is night. They walk past the tree, but it's night. They don't take notice of the fact that it has withered because it's night. The next morning when they're coming back, Peter goes, hey, it's withered. Because it's the first time they've actually seen it 
even though the withering took place immediately from the roots. So in case those things were a concern to you, that in some way this is some sort of contradiction of Scripture, it actually isn't. It's explained in the text itself. Only if we want to make it a contradiction does it become a contradiction. So with a withered fig tree and the cursing of that tree, with a tree and leaf with no figs as our parentheses, let's look then in Mark chapter 11 at this event of Jesus cleansing the temple. We'll note three things. First of all, the action that is taken, the action taken. Secondly, the teaching given. And thirdly, the application today. What does Jesus' cleansing of the temple say to you and I today? Well, first of all, the action taken. This is actually the second time that Jesus has cleansed the temple. John reports to us in John chapter 2 that early in Jesus' ministry, at the same, at the same feast, Passover, but not at the same time, Jesus did this as well. So not only, see it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Not only is the fig tree sort of the parentheses, so is cleansing the temple. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus has cleansed the temple. At the end of his public ministry, there is a cleansing of the temple as well. So there's, there's all sorts of things that are taking place here. But John makes it very clear that this is the second time that this has occurred because John reports it in John chapter 2 and you read through John chronologically as well and the events that are laid before us. Um, John doesn't, isn't in the habit of taking an event at the end of Jesus' life and putting it at the beginning. He also is tracing it. And so we have two occurrences, which makes this rather interesting because we learn then that in early in Jesus' ministry, he cleanses, but there is the need to do it again because there is an ongoing practice. Not unlike ourselves, is there? How rare it is in our own lives that once we confess a sin, acknowledge that sin, repent of that sin, that we do not return to that sin. And we need to acknowledge it and repent of it, turn from it, confess Christ again. Sometimes we do this most frequently in life, do we not? Therefore, we are to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us multitude of times. But we see here in Mark chapter 11 that the practice that Jesus had at the beginning of his ministry dealt with is present again. So in the three years, it's come back. It's reemerged. Three things are noted for us in Mark chapter 11. One, there is the purchasing of animals. Now we need to understand where we are. Where is this taking place? Well, we're told this is in the temple, but we have to understand the temple is a complex, right? Not, not everybody enters the building that is called the temple. 
the temple building only gets entered by priests. Right? And, and they only, the priests only get to enter the front part of the building. Only the high priest gets to enter that holy of holies. So in the temple structure itself, it's very limited. But there is, there are several courtyards. There is a courtyard for women. There is a courtyard for Jewish men. But the largest of those courtyards is referred to as the courtyard of the Gentiles. This is where all of this is taking place. So we're in the temple complex, but we're not in the particular building itself, not in the temple structure. Now, we should note, one, that this courtyard is walled, so as you look around, there is a wall all the way around you. It is 450 feet long, 750 feet wide. So if you stop to think about that, 450 feet long is football field and a half. 750 is two and a third, something like that, two and a half. This is a large area. And what you're standing on is marble. The whole floor of this, the, the whole bottom of this is marble. So just imagine, okay, the beauty of this area. A wall structure all the way around, huge area with marble floor. That's what you're walking on. This is the place where God invites the nations of the world, the court of the Gentiles, to come to pray. But the ongoing practice is it has become a place of selling animals. It is Passover. There is the necessity of purchasing a lamb. Josephus tells us of a Passover that was held about 30 years after this, in 65 AD. Josephus is a Jewish historian. He tells us that at that Passover in 65 AD, 255,000 lambs were sacrificed. 255,000 lambs. And we can't say that was the same thing at the time of Jesus, but we can kind of get an idea there is an abundance of animals. People who travel, people who have come from Alexandria, Egypt, people who have traveled from Turkey, Asia Minor, people who have come from Greece or even from Rome, Jews who have come back for this Passover, you're not going to be taking a lamb with you. You take money with you to purchase the lamb. So this court of the Gentiles is filled with marketers selling lambs, hawking their animals. Best lambs here, purest lambs here, best price here. Extenuate 
hundreds of times over the shouting that takes place in the marketplace of Bethlehem alive. Vendors all over the place trying to get their animals sold. Alongside of these vendors are tables set up for money changers. Why? Because you came from Rome or you came from Athens. The coins in your pocket are considered idolatrous. Why? Because they bear the inscription of a human who has declared himself to be God. A Caesar coin. You can't take that into the temple. That's idolatrous. So your coin bearing the image of a Caesar has to be exchanged for a nondescript coin. You're poor. You don't have much money. You are required as well to present an offering. Your offering is going to be two turtle doves or pigeons. Though we have marketers with cages with birds upon birds upon birds for those who are poor. In addition, the book of Exodus tells us that it was required at the Passover that every adult male gave one half shekel for the upkeep of the Lord's house at the Passover. That coin cannot be used that's in your pocket bearing an inscription. That also needs to be exchanged. Can you imagine the noise? Imagine the noise. Thousands and thousands of people, thousands of animals and birds, vendors shouting, money changers saying about their rates are better exchanged than the next guy. All upon what? Dirt? No. Sod? No. All upon what? Marble. With walls. What's going to happen? It's going to echo and echo and echo. The noise itself must have been deafening. In addition to all of this, part of the ongoing practice was there were two gates for this court of the Gentiles. It made a nice shortcut through the city. You could get from one side of the city to the other side of the city by simply cutting through this court of the Gentiles and it would take, I, I believe I read somewhere over a mile off your course that you would normally have to take going around. So there's all sorts of people just moving through. They're not buying, they're not selling. They, they've bought their goods somewhere else in Jerusalem. Maybe they brought their flour, their wheat, whatever. Maybe they brought some cloth. Maybe they're just going to visit relatives on the other side of town. They're all moving through as well. And some are going this direction. Some are going that direction. But not only the noise. Think of the smell. Think of what's lifting up here to the heavens. 
the stench of all of these animals, the stench of all of these people, hot, sweaty, stinks. This is the ongoing practice. To which, now, turn back with me to Mark chapter 11. What happens? Verse 15, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not let anyone He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Remember I told you it's used as the shortcut? That's what that's referencing. No, you're just using this as a shortcut. Stop. You cannot come through here. No, stop. No, no, I see. I see you got your sack of grain. No, this is not a shortcut. You may not come through here. This is Jesus' response. Not made up. Not my interpretation. This is what he does. This is Jesus' response. This is the action that Jesus took. In the passage in John, chapter 2, the first one, we read he actually made a whip and drove them out. The disciples, upon watching this and observing that in the John passage, are reminded of an Old Testament passage that says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will take hold of me. Certainly not less here. Christ's zeal for the Father's house. The meekest of men drives out those who sold and bought. The meekest of men overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. The meekest of men would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Meekness, as we have stated and you have read probably in many places, is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Because when you stop to think about it, folks, what could he have done? What could not Jesus Christ have done? This is mild. This is tame to the judgment that Christ could have called down upon these people. Actually, when we read this and when we understand what is happening, this is merciful. It was merciful for Jesus to limit himself to only this response. It could have been much more severe. But in his mercy, he limits it. Yes, this is the meekest of men. Because we see his strength, his power under control. Never think, my friends, that meekness means no action. Never think that meekness means just walking away and not dealing with a circumstance. That's not meekness, that's cowardness. Meekness is dealing with it, but in a way that shows forth the strength, the power that you have, but it is limited 
This is what Jesus meant when he said, and the meek shall inherit the earth. Not the cowardly, but those who have strength and power, but they choose to limit it in their responses. So here's our action. That's what took place. Verse 17, and he was teaching them. So now we come to our second point, the teaching. What does he teach? He teaches them, one, that this is the Lord's house. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. It's the quote from Isaiah 56, verse 7. He's not saying my as in Jesus' house. He's quoting the Lord. The Lord says, God says, my house shall be a house of prayer. The John passage, I believe, brought that out, correct? My father's house, he refers to it there. And that's a good reminder, and it's a reminder of the fact of, of where they are and the place where they're, where they're at. When Solomon dedicated his temple, we read that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. When Isaiah came to the temple of his day and has the vision of the Lord, he responds, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He hears those cherubim and seraphim singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When Jesus makes this statement about his father's house, it is a reminder to those who are hearing him that this is to be a place of holiness. This is to be a place that is separated for the glory and for the honor and for the praise of God. Now pause. Just go back. Go back to the description I gave you of the ongoing process. The ongoing circumstance of the situation on that Passover week in which Jesus comes to the temple. Prior to Jesus calling a halt to it. Prior than Jesus overturning those tables. Look out on that scene. Look at it. Look at it. Open your ears. Hear the sound. Take a big sniff. Smell. Does that sound like, smell like, look like holiness to you? Does that look like a place where God is being lifted up and God is being glorified? Does this look like a place that Isaiah might have come to and said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Because I see the glory of God, or do is it I see and smell the stench of men and animals? My father's house. Secondly, Jesus says, to continue that statement, shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. A house of prayer. That was the purpose of of this court of the Gentiles. That's what this area was for. It was for the nations of the world to come and pray to the sovereign God of heaven and earth, to the Lord. Can you imagine if you're a Gentile? Just imagine, you come, okay? And, and you're there in that scene, in that chaos, trying to pray. 
if you got down on your knees, you'd probably be trampled to death by the crowd. Somebody seeking to get out quickly. You might be down on your knees and you go, oh no. Sheep dung. You might have stretched out your hands prostrate before the Lord and then, oh. Or been stepped on numerous times. My house. This place. Particularly this court of the Gentiles. Is to be a place of prayer. For the nations. Here's someone who is coming to seek the Lord. Here's God extending his tent. Anything but a place of prayer. Anything but a place of meditation, a place of solitude, a place of communing with God. It would be virtually nigh impossible to concentrate upon the Lord God in the midst of that which is taking place. Continue on. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. See, on top of that which was going on comes in this. This was a money-making scheme. This was being used to line the pockets of the high priest family who had control of the temple complex. Passover lambs are sold at a higher price once you're in the gate. We all experience that, don't we, when we travel and we go to some tourist place. Something that we could buy for a dollar, okay, at Walmart five miles away, suddenly becomes $11.99. That's what they were doing. They were taking advantage of people. Well, I don't want to buy my lamb outside of the temple. Probably lambs inside the temple are more holy. I'll, I'll purchase mine inside the temple. Besides, it's a little more convenient. I don't have to go through the streets of Jerusalem. Once you get inside, it's like, wow. But you're stuck. You need an animal. How are you going to look if you turn away now? You're going to look cheap. Ka-ching. The exchanging of funds is done the same way. Not the normal exchange rate that you could get at your local bank, but now that you're here, it's like being in the airport getting the exchange rate, and it's like, whoa, I'm paying a whole lot. I'm losing money on this deal. Yep. Ka-ching, high priest family. Doves. That which should have been sold so cheaply for the sake of the poor being able to worship now becomes at a much higher price. You've made it a den of robbers. You've made it a place where the worship of God and the honor of God and the glory of God is not taking place. But your honor, your glory, your pockets are. So this is the event of the cleansing of the temple. 
Notice the reaction when the chief priests and scribes, oh, those who are on the take of this, those who are on the receiving end, those who are getting fundled all this money, heard it. They sought a way to destroy it. So that brings us to our application today. And I think there are applications in two ways. First of all, there is an application for us to consider for our own church, the Lord's house. That is what we consider this place to be. That is what we call this place. This is the Lord's house. This is the church. And so that which takes place here should at least give us pause to, to reflect and to think on a couple of things. One, it seems like in that which is taking place here, in that which Jesus is dealing with, nobody's really thinking this through, are they? Nobody's really thinking about this. Because their attitudes are wrong. The chief priests and scribes, their attitude is wrong because they're looking at it going, money, money, money. The people are looking at it as being religious ritual, religious ritual, religious ritual. I just got to do the thing. I just got to do the thing. Doesn't matter how I do it, I just got to do it. And obviously the people involved in the practice could care less about Gentiles and prayer and God. If there is an application of this passage for us today, one of those applications for the church, it's about attitudes. Attitudes of preparation. Are we really prepared to come into the Lord's house on a Sunday morning and Sunday evening? Are we rushing and rushing and rushing and rushing? We're going to be late, we're going to be late. Is that really the way to enter God's house? How have we prepared to come into the presence of God? When you went to the dresser, when you went to the clothes closet, did you think, I am meeting God today. How should I prepare? See, or am I just in the court of the Gentiles and a mass of people and it really doesn't matter? Or am I in the presence of God? Am I preparing? Am I thinking about? Am I reflecting on? There's probably any number of folks, if you're a sports person, there's probably any number of sports heroes that you would love to have the opportunity to meet personally. If you're a, a business person, there's probably some business people you'd just love to meet. If you're into uh, modern entertainment, there's probably some singers or movie personalities or TV personalities you wouldn't mind meeting. If you're a podcast person, you'd probably love to meet certain people who are involved in that business and industry. My guess is you would not be five minutes late for that appointment. You would never come late. You'd be there early. You'd leave extra early. 
you'd be planning and thinking, wait a minute, traffic might be bad. Wait a minute, that might be, we're leaving at this time. Why? So we're there. God is meeting with us today. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is present with us. Do we pay attention that way in our worship? Are we that focused upon the Lord? I have a quote from Archbishop William Temple defined worship as the following, to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. When a seeking heart enters our churches, our homes, our lives, our court of the Gentiles, may our actions say that God is alive, that God is holy, that God is loving. May our worship and service say to others that we love him with all our hearts. Do we understand that we have come today to worship the Lord? Sadly, in our evangelical world today, this is missing. That which I have just read, that which I've just talked about, is missing. It's a come at any time, leave at any time. I'm not saying that about little farms. That, it's just the, the world, the culture in which we live in. Gotta have my latte. In fact, they're for sale in the narthex. Along with books, along with CDs, along with whatever else paraphernalia is for sale. The worship of God has become commercialized. Oh, maybe not certainly to the extent that we see it here that Jesus is dealing with. We don't have animals yet. But my guess is there are probably some churches that aren't too far behind to lining up the cages for some sort of pet adoption Sunday. So we'll hear barking of dogs and meowing of cats. We already have blessed pets Sunday in which they're paraded in. But it's this commercialization. It's the selling of the business. You don't even need to show up to give. Just swipe the card. The scribes, the chief priests would have loved that feature. You mean we can get money out of people and they don't even have to come? I'll bet they'll give more money because they're not spending money on gas and everything else. Let's go with it. Swipe the thing. The commercialization of the house of God. That's why we need to be diligent, brothers and sisters, in guarding our practices as well. Some of you, let me just give you an example. Some of you may have questioned, you know, okay, we, we had this vote Tuesday night at the congregational meeting, and it's sort of like, okay, we're voting to spend $25,000. We get a vote of 83 to 8. Why don't we just do that Sunday? 
How much simpler? Just stay for a minute. We'll hand out some papers and offer our prayer and you vote and we talk about it maybe for a few minutes and then done. Boy, how easy that would have been. Look, you're all here. to guard our practices. As if we can't even bother to make a decision about money outside of the Lord's day. What else are we going to do? Yeah, that's not the major thing. It's not a big thing. It's not a huge thing. But it's a little way in which we, we're, we, we strive to say, look, Money decisions, that's not for the Lord's day. Let's set that aside. We, we, we can talk about those things and perhaps argue about them and discuss them, but those other days. That's why we try to guard that, those things, those slots we call the mail. Why? Because we don't want it to become commercialized with everybody hawking their stuff and selling this and selling that. But you know, there is another application of this. It's not just to the church. It's to our lives. Because we are the Lord's temple. And how often is it not, my friends, that there is the creep, the creep of sin, right? Jesus cleansed this temple once, but it creeped back in. How often doesn't happen to us, the creep. Our bodies as the temples of the Holy Spirit, how often doesn't the creep occur, the sin? Too much good food. Too much good wine, too much sex, creeps in. Sin begins, Bill, started with one table, with one guy selling some lambs, and pretty soon the whole court of the Gentiles is filled with lambs and doves and money changers. And we wonder, how did that happen? It creeped. Boy, it works in us, too. We need to guard that. We need to remember we are the Lord's temple. The temples of the Holy Spirit. And we need to guard. Guard our hearts. Guard our minds. Guard our bodies. From the sin that so easily creeps. And we need to go to Christ for a cleansing. Maybe today, your temple needs a cleansing. No, I'm not talking about that kit you buy at Myers. Maybe you need that one, I don't know. But that's not kind of the cleansing, the spiritual cleansing. Where we come back to Christ again, acknowledge our sin, look to him only for our salvation. And then do that 
which we're called to do, to commune with them. See, while all that sin is present in our temples, we tend not to commune with the Lord. Oh, we pretend it, we act it, but we really don't spend time on the marble floor of the court of the Gentiles. There's no place for it because the animals and the money changers of sin in our hearts don't leave room. But when we come to Christ and are cleansed, are washed, sometimes he does it with a whip, sometimes he overturns tables, sometimes it isn't pleasant. But it presents for us the opportunity to commune with our God.